Welcome to Brain Nevat. We are rejoined by one of our favorite guests, Sean Stanley from Bristol University, and we're going to be talking about the mind-body problem. Sean is controversial as usual and thinks that there are no such things as minds. Sean, would you like to start with a thought experiment? The Antipodians are a group of, of creatures, a civilization at the other end of the galaxy. They're very much like us. You know, they've got two legs, they've got two arms. They have very complex societies and great cultures and so on. However, there is a difference in our history when compared with theirs. See, in our history, our science developed by thinking about physics, the physical world, chemical world, the biological world. And it's only really now that we're starting to develop our science of uh, the mind and psychology. However, for the Antipodians, the development was almost the other way around. They began by developing their science from neurophysiology, from biochemistry, and so developed a very rigorous and deeply predictably successful theory of their nature as biological entities. And so an interesting thing about their society is that rather than talking about, as we would, uh, mental states, belief states, pains, and so on, instead they referred directly to their neurological states. Rather than, for example, these creatures perhaps burning their hand on a stove and expressing, oh no, I'm in pain, they would rather just express, oh no, my sea fibers have started to fire, rather than being amazed by the wondrous sight of, and you know, these incredible illusions that magicians can create, for example. They'll rather say, this particular part of my neural uh, network is excited at the moment. So they, in, rather unlike us, have a very intuitive grasp of just exactly what's going on in their heads. More importantly than that, however, they actually have no mentalistic language at all. They don't think of their C fibers as pain. They don't think of their neuro neurological networks as the excitation of their mental states. They rather just think about it as states of their body, states of their physical brains. Now, sometime in the future, we can imagine a bunch of uh, scientists and philosophers from Earth are sent to their planet. Obviously, we've invented this amazing technology to travel very fast in space. We arrive there, and it seems as if the scientists among us are very interested. They really want to know what exactly the Antipodians know about uh, biochemistry, about physiology. They want to test out all their theories to see what they're getting right and what they're getting wrong. And they're all very excited. The philosophers, on the other hand, are a little bit more frustrated. See, philosophers come to ask this question, well, sure, they, they've got you know, very apparently intelligent behavior, they have all these amazing cultures, but they don't seem to have any language for their mental states. So they go up to one of the Antipodians and says, right, what do you say when you touch a fire and you get hurt? You get into pain, right? I said, no, my sea fibers start firing. And they go through this process of trying to correlate what the philosophers understand as mental terminology with what the Antipodians understand as their physiological or neurological terminology. And frustratingly, the philosophers can't seem to uh, get the Antipodians to admit that they have minds. Mental states, consciousness, what it feels like to be in pain seem to be absent from their vocabulary entirely. They just don't know what on earth the philosophers are talking about. So the question that I have to ask is, are the philosophers in this case correct? Are the Antipodians somehow benighted not really recognizing that C fibers are in fact pains or that neurological excitations are in fact beliefs and desires that motivate their actions. Are the philosophers right or are they actually wrong? And 
they've hold up, held on to an outdated language, an outdated mentalistic language. And the answer that I give to this question is that, in this case, perhaps the philosophers are wrong. There aren't any mental states, any sense of consciousness. There are just the physical states of the physical beings. So I'm very, very um, sympathetic to this view. And I like the idea that there might not be mind. And there's a version of the Antipodean thought experiment, which you've given, which is quite plausible. So the version of it is where the Antipodeans and the humans share the same physiology. So there's the same neural states in both cases, but the humans label them as mental states and the Antipodeans label them as physiological states. Now, now you've got this debate, right? So who's right? And it seems like it's a, 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 a toss of the coin. Um, and perhaps you might provide some suggested reasons for why the Antipodians are right. You know, their language is more precise, it's more scientific, etc. But now let's imagine a second version of this thought experiment. So the second version is the Antipodians and the humans have different physiolo physiologies. So in humans, when you place your hand on a burning stove, you experience pain, which is instantiated by C fibers firing. But when, I mean, by the way, C fibers are not real. This, this is just, it's just a, a term that philosophers use to abbreviate whatever neural states they are that fire. But let's just imagine that in antipodians, which are shaped more like octopuses or octopi, when they stick their tentacle, on, on the burning stove or their equivalent of a burning stove, they don't have C fibers. Instead, they have inflation of the gills. So their gills inflate and they feel pain. Now, it seems like if we ask the antipodians what is going on when you put your hand on that stove or your tentacle on that stove, and they say, well, my gills inflate. And we say, well, actually, when we put our hands on stoves, we have C fibers firing, but we feel pain and you're also feeling pain. But if you never mention the pain, if you only ever mention the neurological states, you're ignoring the fact that there is something in common between us. And we don't know that at all if the only thing we mention are the physiological states. So this is a problem which philosophers call the problem of variable realization. It seems like pain can be instantiated in distinct physiological states, even though it's the very same pain. So that's a good point. And it's related to what philosophers called in the past, the identity theory or type-type identity theory. And this is a reductive view. A reductive view is one, a view in which we have one phenomenon explained in terms of another phenomenon. So for example, you might think of the reduction of heat the phenomenon of heat to mean molecular or mean kinetic energy of molecule. So in the one case, we, instead of saying, well, the fire is very hot, we rather say there's a lot of excitation of the molecules around the area of the fire. That's just what heat is. So there's an identity relation. And in the past, a lot of philosophers thought that there might be this kind of identity relation between what you and I might call the pain state when we put our hand on the stove and C fibers firing or whatever neurological states is going on. And so, yeah, there is a problem when we come to think about different kinds of creatures, for example, the antipodians, but we don't even have to be that extreme. We can think of dogs or cats. Anybody with pets knows that sometimes pets can feel pain. They you know, make a loud noise and it looks like they're in pain, but their physiology is unlike our own. 
And so there seems to be a problem for anybody who wants to say that our mental states are going to be identical to particular types of physiological states. But that isn't what I'm saying. What I'm saying rather is that it's not that there's an identity relation between, on the one hand, mental states or whatever particular mental state and physiological states on the other hand. Rather, I'm saying the thing that you thought of as the mental state, in this case, the pain state, isn't real. That isn't there. And so for me, this problem doesn't quite arise. I mean, there surely are other problems, but that isn't one of them. That's going to be a problem for an identity theory. And so for an eliminative materialist, the position that I'm defending at least a little bit here, that problem doesn't quite arise. I think it's important to try to ask when we talk about reduction, what exactly we're, we're talking about, what is being reduced to what. And for an eliminative materialist and for a lot of people, a lot of philosophers at least, we think of mental state terminology what people sometimes call folk psychology, as its own kind of theory, a theory that is used to explain human behavior. So for example, I shall take a sip of my water. This is a kind of behavior. And you may want to explain why Sean has behaved in that way. And one of the ways of explaining that is to invoke the folk psychological terms, such as that I desired to quench my thirst, I believed that taking a sip of water would quench my thirst. There were no countervailing factors in place, and that's why I behaved as I did. So we use these mentalistic terms to explain behavior. And the question is whether that, those terms can be reduced to neurophysiological terms. The identity theorist says, yes, they can, and we've just seen a problem with that. And I say, no, they can't be, because there aren't such mental terms at all, that theory is not a referring or good theory. So I appreciate the response and I, I agree that the variable realization problem is usually a problem posited against identity theorists. So people who believe that you can reduce types of mental states to types of physical states. The type of mental state called pain is reducible to the type of physical state called uh, C-fibers firing. And so when you find pain in different types of creatures, some with C-fibers and some without, then it seems like there's a problem. But again, there's, there's an issue here because the thought experiment rests on an intuition. It's, it's trying to push you towards the intuition that the antipodians are not missing anything in their description of the world. But this variable realization problem suggests that they are. You could accuse me of begging the question here, right? So you could accuse me of saying, well, um, I'm saying there aren't mental states. And so you can't reference mental states in the discussion of what it is they're missing. But I could accuse you of begging the question against me begging the question, because the intuition is that, that these human philosophers are able to, to view what is happening with the antipodians in a way that adds something extra, which is important, which is that they feel the same way as the humans do when they stick their tentacles on a fire as humans do when they stick their hands in the same fire, even though there's different physi physiological states involved. And the human philosophers can tell you what that thing is that's in common, it's pain, right? Whereas the antipodians can't, there's just a lack in their description of the world. They are right that there's C fibers firing when humans do it, that there's something else when, when antipodians do it, but it seems like they're missing something. And the variable realization problem does suggest that. I suppose that there are two routes down which we can go. I think we should explore both of them. The one is going to be to adopt a functionalist point of view. 
in which we'll take mental states or your description as mental states to denote functional states. In other words, we'll take mental terms like being in pain to denote states which occur from a particular kind of stimulus that enter into a particular internal um, set of uh, circumstances and that result in particular behavioral outputs. So for example, we don't need to identify being in pain with the firing of C fibers or anything like that in human physiology. We could rather say that pain is just that state you go into when your flesh is stimulated in the correct kind of way. You have off surfaces on your nerve endings. You go into whatever is going on into your head and you produce some kind of statement, ouch, I'm in pain, this really hurts, there's some behavioral output. So we can see lots of mental states in that way. For example, this is a pen, your audience now sees a pen or have heard my description that there's a pen and now they are put into a state, the state as of being exposed to a particular stimulus. If you were to ask them a question, what did Sean, what object is Sean holding? They would likely answer something like, well, he's holding a pen or there's a physical object in his hand. We don't have to see mental states as particular states of the human brain, could rather see them as functional states. And so from this perspective, when the antipodians try to respond to you, they'll say, no, 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 I put my tentacle over the fire, I recoiled really quickly, there was a lot of molecular energy going on, I put my state into a particular way, they have their own language equivalent of, ouch, this hurts, I wanted to stop, etc. So in this sense, they might be functionally indistinguishable. So that's the one kind of response. The other is to talk about that dreaded topic known as qualia, or the subjective internal feelings that one has when we uh, go into certain mental states. So I'm going to be a skeptic about qualia. I don't think that there are subjective internal raw feels of states. I don't think that pain in this deep sense that's not capturable by a functional description, feels like anything. There's a particular reason for that, but I think I've said enough for the moment to let you respond at least to the functionalist point. I haven't heard functionalism used in quite that way to support eliminativism. That's a very good response. So imagine this case. I create a robot, which I cover in latex and looks very, very human looking, and I program it to behave like a human being would. So when it puts its hand by a fire, it recoils, it screams ouch, but we know that it doesn't have any capacity at all to feel pain. It has no internal mental states. It's not programmed in that manner. It just behaves in exactly the same way that a human being would behave. Now, it seems to me that when we're comparing this robot to a human being, there is some difference. There is something that separates these two beings from each other, even if they function in identical manners. But it seems that if you want to say well, human beings don't have mental states, you want to say, well, there is no distinction at all. So I mean, the first comment is I'm not sure that human skin is like uh, silicone. Um, so I'm not too sure which people you're interacting with. Um, but, Let's just say it's been a very long lockdown. And you know, <laughs> there's only so many, <laughs> so many outputs one has during this difficult time. <laughs> But I spent no expense on the sex bot, Sean. No expense. (laughs) (laughs) Human skin one is in the mail. I'm sad because Jason doesn't have the posters. I I think there's a book that Jason wrote, which involved a a robotic entity, a person-like entity. Um, 
Uh, yeah, it, it's um, called Dinner with Flexi. It's about an Android sex bot who has who isn't a good example of what Mark's talking about because she has very deep resentment towards all of her human joes and she services 23 a day on the half hour and and she doesn't have a good time of it but mark's mark's example is an android sex bot who doesn't feel anything at all and yet is is functionally equivalent to a, a human prostitute and it seems on your account you can't distinguish the two so i, I mentioned the the robot because i always find science fiction depictions of robots to be very interesting the intuition that I think many people do have is to say that there is something that the robot is, is lacking, is missing. And that's always why we, we ask these questions. Are machines really capable of thinking? Uh, do they really feel something? There was that film Ex Machina in which, you know, that was one of the central questions whether this robot was conscious in the appropriate ways. But I, I always think about it from the opposite point of view. Human beings are like very fleshy robots. We are incredibly complex uh, machines. And if you really were to create a robot with the, the level of uh, the degrees of freedom that human humans have, the level of complexity that we have, yeah, I, I don't think that there's anything missing. Replace the silicon chips and the electrical wiring with, with neurons uh, and veins and all of that. And I think that you have an identical person. And so the question really then becomes, can we see other human beings as, if not experiencing mental states, at the very least as entities with thought, entities that are capable of feeling in some sense? I think the answer to that question is obviously yes, in some sense of that term, to be discussed in a bit. But yeah, so I'm, I'm unmoved by the example of the robot, because if the robot really is programmed in the way ways to respond exactly like a human being would respond, the fact that they are made of silicone chips and metal and whatnot is really just uh, immaterial in a sense. It doesn't really make a difference. They are functionally like others, and there's no way of distinguishing between the two. I'm not too sure why we would think the robot doesn't uh, feel in the same way that the human does, given that they have the same complexity. Let's think about the different versions of the robot that we make. The first one just functions in the same manner as a human being, in other words, behaviorally. And the question is, if I've done that, have I really created a sufficient person? I don't need to do any further work. Or do I need to continue doing the programming where there are these internal felt responses? In other words, when the robot recoils, it thinks to itself, I am recoiling because that is an unpleasant sensation and I don't want to experience it. Or is the mere act of recoiling sufficient? Now, those two versions of the robot from the outside perspective are identical. But if you think that the one is more human than the other, that you could be uh, doing more to copy humanity through the second version of the robot, well, then you've got to admit that there is something more than functionalism going on with human beings. One part of the issue is what we are counting as part of the behavior. Because if we count verbal responses and whatever responses we might give to questions and interviews and whatnot as part of behavior, then between your complexly designed robot and me, it's very difficult to tell one apart. After all, I have recently picked up a bad habit. I have a fire here. I could put my hand over it and say, ouch. You could ask me, Sean, what happened? What, what went on? I'll say, well, I was put into a state of alert. There was a sensation that I appeared to have. I wanted it to stop. Is and that what you would say, Sean? Is it... <laughs> <laughs> exactly in that way is what I would say. 
gosh, you must be quite something in bed. It's like, you know, how was that for you? Well, I was put into a certain physiological state 372 where there were certain inputs and outputs. Oh, there were a lot of inputs and outputs, that's for sure. <laughs> my goodness. And it, it makes it all the worse that we, we're filming this uh, with my bed behind me. So, um... <laughs> Very strategically placed pillows there, Sean. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Yeah, lockdown has indeed been difficult. Um, so, so I mean, would I respond in that way? No, you know, perhaps uh, I, I try to jazz it up, you know, there'd be sexy music playing in the background and so on. But the essence of my response would stay the same. Uh, I went into the state, I wanted to recoil, it felt unpleasant. Uh, and whatever that feeling of unpleasantness is, presumably the robot could respond in a very similar way. Now, you, you can keep pushing back and say, but, you know, surely there's something, there's something, there's something. That the robot is missing. And here's where I'm going to introduce what I think is a chief problem for people who want to talk about what you're talking about, which is normally referred to as qualia or raw feels or the phenomenal character of our sensations. The problem as I see it is that when we describe things, when we use words or language at all, since language is a social phenomena, notwithstanding Jason's remarks, um, all of our terms are third-person accessible. In order for you to understand what I'm saying or to understand what I'm trying to reference, there has to be some means by which you could also see it or experience it or interact with it in some way. However, when it comes to these internal phenomenal feelings, these qualia, there's no real way of describing what's going on in a language which is accessible to a third person, accessible to you. I could claim, and many people do claim, that they have these internal sensations that there's a difference between me and the robot and so on. Ask them to describe what is the difference and they will give you an answer, if any, in functional terms. As I wanted to recoil from the fire because it was hot, they, you know, it was, it was unpleasant to me. I wanted it to stop, etc. And these are all terms that we're all familiar with, but terms that a robot could, if they really wanted to, or we programmed it to, uh, provide in response. So yeah, we can keep pushing this idea that there is something missing from the robot, but I think that you're going to have a hard time describing what it is beyond using the label raw feels or qualia. And this, I don't think is enough to warrant my acceptance that there really are these qualia. I think it's a clever objection to qualia. Uh, I actually haven't heard that one either. Uh, so yeah, a very interesting defense of this position. I have an alternative objection to you. So Part of the Antipodian thought experiment that you started with, part of the presumption is that we have two competing theories about human behavior, right? So we've got the Antipodian saying the best theory of the way people behave is through describing their physiological brain states, their brain states. Um, so if you want to understand why someone is behaving the way they do, you don't have to cite things like reasons or desires or beliefs. All you need to do is talk about their brain states. If you have a total understanding of their brain, you have a very good understanding of what they're doing and what they will do and why they're doing what they're doing. Whereas the human philosophers who arrive, they have a very different theory about what's going on in the world when people behave. So they think that people's behavior is caused by certain mental states. They think that the reason I lift this glass of water and drink is because I believe that there's water in this glass that'll quench my thirst and I'm thirsty. And so I have a reason to drink and I drink. Antipodians won't say that. They'll say, well, I have neurological states 476 and 982 
and together they produce this behavior of drinking. Now, question is, is the view that there are mental states and citing those mental states in our behavior and explaining our behavior, is that a theory at all? Now, it seems like when it comes to citing brain states to explain things, that is a theory because it could be falsified, right? So one of the criteria that many people accept for theories is that they must be falsifiable. It's Popper's falsifiability thesis. So this idea that, well, one day we could discover that actually the antipodians are wrong. It's not mental state four, six, it's not physiological state four, six, two, it's four, six, three that I had. So it, they could be wrong, right? But it seems like I can't be wrong about certain mental states that I claim to be in. So if you stick a needle in me and I say, ouch, and you say, well, what are you feeling? And I say, pain. And you say, no, you're not. You're not in pain. And I say, no, I am in pain. I believe I'm in pain. I feel the pain, the qualia of pain, as you put it. But let's put qualia aside for a moment. I say to you, I believe I'm in pain. It seems like that's sufficient to be in pain. It seems like the mere belief that I'm in pain means I must be in pain, provided I'm holding that belief sincerely. So it, that, that, that seems to contradict this idea that, that the mental state theory is a theory at all. It seems to suggest that it's something else because theories are falsifiable, but certain claims within the mental state theory, but, but within the psychological theory are not falsifiable. I think that's a really, really good point. I've got three responses and you know, we'll, we'll try to follow, follow them. The one is that I think it's important that we are able to distinguish between folk psychology as a theory about human action or human behavior and how it is we might go about explaining our mental lives uh, or at least making sense of our mental lives because the two are not, they're not always the same. For example, Economists want to explain the behavior of people in the market. They want to explain why certain things uh, become more demanded, why supply chains stop or fail or don't, etc. And that really is an attempt to explain mass human behavior on a large scale. And there they, they can make uh, use of people's desires and uh, what, what, they, what they most want, what things will give them the most utility, etc. And I, I think that there's a way of talking about mental states in a purely explanatory way for explaining behavior. So we can put that to the side for the moment, so that even if there are these unfalsifiable elements of folk psychology, there is also the falsifiable or potentially falsifiable part. Now to the unfalsifiable part, I think I have two further responses. The one is that when you talk about pain, I'd like us to think about the tribe. I think this thought experiment comes from Daniel Dennett, this imaginary tribe of, of people who don't have mental states in the way that you and I understand them, rather they have fatigues. So when you get pricked by a pin, you'll say, ouch, I'm in pain. And you'll, you'll say, you know, there's a pain in my hand or whatever. But when members of this tribe, say, for example, get pricked by a pin, they don't say they're in pain. They rather say, oh, I'm experiencing fatigue. And to the question, where's the fatigue? They'll say the fatigue is in my hand. Now, you and I understand the term fatigue in a very different way to these people. And so we can ask the question, are they really right about being in fatigues or having fatigue? Much the same way that we can ask, are you really right that you are in pain? So we can see that part of this response is to see pain or belief or desire or hope or uh, wish as 
an item from our culture, a way in which we've been enculturated to think about whatever is going on when we interact with the world. You have been enculturated to think that when you experience a pinprick, you're in pain. They've been enculturated to think that when they experience a pinprick, they have fatigue. Who's right between those two positions? It's not obvious, right? But what is clear, I think, is that one or both could be wrong. They might not be fatigued. Ditto, of course, uh, we can think about a more elaborate example of where people thought that forms of psychosis were examples of demonic possession. They might see somebody behaving in a very strange way, uh, maybe behaving violently, and they might say, well, why, why are they doing that? And they'll say, well, I'm possessed by the devil. I, I, I have to do this. We don't think that they are possessed by the devil. We think that they could be wrong. They were possessed by the devil. But the surety that they have, that they were being demonically possessed, is very much like the surety that you have when you say you're in pain, ditto for the people who are experiencing fatigue. So that's the one kind of response, but the more humorous response is to, instead of talking about pain, talk about maybe the opposite, talk about love, right? We all, or at least most of us, want to find love and experience love and the joy and whatnot that, that happens. And sometimes we, we might imagine one of your friends, a close friend, says that they've fallen in love with someone else that they met at a party. They had this amazing time. It was a great dinner. And now they're in love with that person. They want to get married. You might say, no, man, you, you're not in love. You just had too much to drink. They could sincerely say that they were in love. They could really feel that they were in love. And yet we know from the outside they're not. They're intoxicated. They're mistaking their feelings of uh, intoxication for feelings of love. And so it's not, the pain example is a vivid one. It can be weakened with the fatigues uh, and, and other things, but it's not obvious that we are always infallible about what state we are in. What we are infallible about is that we are in some state. How exactly we describe what that state is, love, pain, fatigues, that is something we could be wrong about. Because of course, and this is part of the eliminativist position, folk psychology is a theory of what is going on inside us and other people. But so could the fatigue theory, so could the demonic possession theory. And just as the fatigues and the demonic possession could be wrong, so too could our folk psychology. I want you to think about someone who lacks the capacity to exhibit behaviors. So you've got people who've got locked in syndrome. So the claim is that they have mental states, they have thoughts, they can have a whole series of desires, they can just do nothing about it. So they, they physically can't move. And But how we find out that they actually have these mental states is that either at some later juncture they discover a way to communicate with us or the locked-in state ceases and they can sort of vividly describe what they were going through at the time. Now, if you have no theory that can account for this, it seems like you have to say this person and the coma patient sitting next to them or the, the corpse sitting next to them are identical. Neither of them display any behaviors. They must be functionally dead. And that seems to, again, misdescribe what's gone on, which is that they're conjuring up thoughts. They, they could be recalling songs. They could be composing poetry in their minds. They could be remembering things. A whole bunch of internal states that we ordinarily think of as being fundamental to being human beings, they have, but they can do nothing about it behaviorally. So I think that there are two things that we need to focus on here. The one is our discovery of their internal state and how we could get uh, information for that or evidence for that. And the other is what we should say about these people once we know that they have internal states but can't exhibit any kind of behavior. So in the first case, when there's just no way of telling 
there's really no way of telling between a dead person, a comatose person, and this person with locked-in syndrome. If we are just not in a position to say anything, then we should say nothing about it. So the epistemic portion of the example, I think we should put to the side. Let's then just say, okay, we know we have some procedure for saying, for detecting they have internal states. Are they having thoughts or are they having what we can now invent, cue thoughts? So thoughts are the sorts of things that you and I have been enculturated to think that we're having. Cue thoughts are what the antipodians have, let's suppose. Now, they definitely have internal states. The question that a philosopher might ask is, what is the nature of those states? How do we best describe them? We can try to describe them using the items of folk psychology. They believe this, they want that, they desire the other. Or we could describe them in other terms, perhaps in neurological terms, as the antipodians do. So what the Olympivist is saying is not that people don't have internal states or they don't respond to stimuli or they don't require certain things to keep living or whatever. They're just saying that the way in which the folk psychologist describes these states is misleading because folk psychological states are not part of a good theory. A better theory will come from neuroscience, so they say. I want to return to the love example. So the reason why it doesn't convince me, basically your argument is that we can, we are fallible about some of the mental states that we can be in, right? So you're fallible about whether you're in love. You can say I'm in love, but actually you're intoxicated and you're not in love. And the next morning you'll realize that and your friends can see so. But love is not a good example, right? Because love is not just a feeling. On most accounts of love, it's more than just how you feel. It includes some sort of reciprocal state on behalf of the other person or some sort of state of affairs outside of you. And so it seems like love is not the right example. But if you were to re-describe that example in just the right way, I think the intuition would go against you. So the intuition is that this person isn't in love, but suppose uh, you re-describe the case as, well, when I look at her, my heart pitter patters and I feel, I feel butterflies in my stomach and I have all these thoughts of taking her to bed and I think about a future with her and I think about marriage with her and I think about children with her. I don't know what it is that straight people do, but, but, the, but the point is, it seems like if, if I were to say to you, no, you're wrong that you're having these feelings and these thoughts, well, then you'd say, well, no, I am having these feelings and thoughts. Does that amount to actually being in love? Well, perhaps not. And I could be wrong about that. But the reason I'm wrong about that is not because I'm fallible about my mental states. It's because I'm fallible about the way the world is and whether she reciprocates that and whether we will get married and have children and whatever it is that straight people do. So again, it's not the denial that somebody is undergoing these kinds of sensations. Of course, your heart flutters when you see her and you have all these fantasies about uh, children and whatnot. Yeah, sure, we, we can say that there are things going on. The question is, how do we describe them? So here I'd like to introduce a notion called the theory-ladenness of of language or the theory-ladenness of observation. The idea that your objection trades on is that while there may be some theories out there, which you know, we can be wrong about, there's a kind of immediacy to uh, our mental feelings. We don't have to infer from any other kind of evidence what it is that we are feeling. But this I don't think is correct, or at least I think there is a way of pushing back on it. Because for example, we don't learn language, we don't come out of the womb knowing language we have to learn language. And so what happens when, for example, 
child, our imagined child falls on the ground and they start weeping. The parent of the child will say, oh no, you have an ouchie on your leg, whatever they happen to say. And so the child learns to associate whatever is going on, whatever they're feeling, with an ouchie. And then they develop more sophisticated language and they start to say, oh, well, it's very similar to what, what I, when I had an ouchie when I was younger. It, in fact, I'm in pain. And then we can start to associate pain. We learn to associate pain with things. It's, it's uncomfortable. Some people get uh, aroused by pain in certain ways. And so they learn to associate pain with certain kinds of pleasure. But we do learn this and we learn to describe our internal states using this language. But it's not obvious that we have to use this language or that this is the most economical or the best kind of language to use. The example that I found compelling is, I think, something that we've spoken about before, the inability to distinguish faces or to recognize faces. Uh, to me, faces seem like any other kind of physical object. There's their lamps, tables, cups and faces. And I would intuitively think that whatever part of my brain recognizes objects is the self-same part that can recognize faces. However, it's not the case. Facial recognition is a very particular part of the brain, and sometimes it can function, sometimes it can't, even though we can continue to recognize other objects. So we may talk about seeing things or believing what we're seeing, but that might belie the reality of what's going on in our head. Intuitively, it seems like recognizing objects is just one kind of thing for me, but actually it's not. The intuitive sense that I get that recognizing faces is just like recognizing other objects is certainly part of folk psychology. However, it turns out to not really be the correct way of thinking about what's going on in people's heads. And so in this way, the way that we're enculturated to think about our mental lives, we can realize that this enculturation process might have been different, and in certain details, it is in fact wrong. There seems to be a genesis problem here, right? So it seems like the first thing we do is we encounter our mental states that, okay, perhaps uh, we have, we've been enculturated to, to do so, right? We, we first encounter our mental states, and the case you gave is face blindness. So I'm, I happen to be face blind, unable to recognize people's faces. So I look at a face and I say, but I, I don't know who that is, right? And someone who's not face blind, who's neurotypical says, well, what are you talking about, man? I mean, can't you see who that is? You know, that's Sean. And I say, well, I don't know who that is because Sean got a haircut and now I can't recognize, and I would normally recognize haircuts. And it seems like I can describe what's going on in mental terms, right? Without referencing the, the fusiform gyrus, which is the part of the brain that, that is responsible for facial recognition. And long before we were aware of the fusiform gyrus and its role in this, people described the experience of being face blind. It seems impossible for the opposite genesis to be true. So it seems impossible that no one, that, that, that they would discover the fusiform gyrus is responsible for this first, and then only would people realize, oh, I'm face blind because my fusiform gyrus doesn't work. So it, it well, I mean, I can imagine that could happen, but it doesn't seem the, the more likely route. So given that the discovery is through the psychological theory, doesn't that suggest that the psychological theory is somehow superior? Well, I mean, we can think now, I suppose, abstractly about, about physics. Um, 
We have Newtonian mechanics and that gets corrected with general relativity. We have an inaccurate theory being replaced by more accurate theory, even though the aspects of Newtonian mechanics that seem to work here on, on Earth and other terrestrial purposes continues to work more or less okay. So this is now a question about explanatory. How much of our internal lives can we get to when we use folk psychological terminology? The answer that Lindsvist gives is not as much as we might gain from doing away with the theory entirely and relying more heavily on neuroscience. So, I mean, you, you are right, like you being an English speaker, having grown up the way that you know, you've grown up, this is how you, you came to recognize your face blackness. And, you know, in, in the past, people could describe it well enough, but that doesn't mean that that is the best way of doing it, right? And it is still a theory, right? I mean, you we use the, the term blindness, you know, and blindness or lacking of sight is also something that people would have to describe and, and start to see that some people couldn't, you know, move across the room. Blind sight is another interesting phenomenon where people claim to be blind, but actually they are able to move through places without bumping into objects and so on. So there's a lot about our mental lives from the folk psychological perspective, which might more accurately be described using neuroscience. And what the eliminativist suggests is that at the end of the day, that is what is going to replace, supersede our folk psychological theories. Not that it has done so already, but they see it encroaching more and more, and that eventually in the future, it's going to happen. So earlier you referenced this term qualia, and Nagel has this famous thought experiment about a bat. You've got a bat navigating through a cave, and it's doing so without vision. It's doing th so through echolocation. And so it's sending out this a sonar, and it's bouncing back, and it's from this sort of device is able to move around the space. And there are blind human beings who echolocate. They're like this, and they can sort of walk through forests. And there's a famous interview with a guy on a podcast called Invisibilia, where he describes what it is like to be this way and, and how you have a kind of mental map of the world that's different from someone who is sighted. So the claim is that there is something particular in, that's internal to someone like this, and that there is a way to be that cannot fully be described. How do you deal with those sorts of claims of qualia? I suppose I have two responses, and this is now where the weakness of my limited materialism will come forward. When you say that these, what it is like to be these sorts of people is in a certain way indescribable, one of the responses I have is to suggest, well, if you can't talk about it, then how are we to know whether it's real? What warrants do we have to suggest that what's going on is as they, well, as they fail to describe. It sounds a little bit like religious thinking. We can't prove that there's a God here. We don't have any evidence for it. There's no evidence possible, but we sure have faith that it's there. And in a way, when people talk about Quelia, they can sound like this a little bit. We can't describe it in the terms of respectable science. We can't describe it using our ordinary natural language. Even when we try really hard to think about how we might talk about this, let's say from a philosophical or phenomenological point of view, it's really difficult, but I promise it's there. That strikes me as, as maybe not a very good uh, position to take, at least one which isn't easily defensible. And given that it's not easily defensible, given that people can't say you know, what it is that we're allegedly missing, I wonder what cost there is to actually just denying that there is this deep phenomenological 
or phenomenal rather, what it is likeness to be these people. I can describe to you in various ways what it feels like to be me. I've recently taken up smoking again, so I have the desire for a cigarette, so-called. It means that after this is done, I'm probably going to beg to go outside to have a cigarette. You know, I, I'm feeling anxious and like, you know, the whole world is collapsing around me. And you can all sort of appreciate what it must be like to, to feel this way when you're hungry. You know, oh, I've got a pit in my stomach. I could devour some great meal. I can give you some insight into what it's like to be me using the medium of our language. But if I tell you, apart from all of that, there's still something else, which I can't describe, but it is there and it's what it's like to be me. Then I think, well, you're not really talking about anything, are you? What is the cost of denying this? Beyond the, the nagging intuition that we have, I'm not sure if that there is one. I don't know if it was Nagel himself or Nagel's followers had a nice response to that, which is that these things are in principle describable, but not using the kind of language we would normally use to describe objective states. So the kind of language we would use to describe them is poetry or song. So the idea that I can describe what it's like to be in love using poetry, which other people resonate with when they're in love even though that poetry, if you were to take it quite literally, is gobbledygook, you know? You might read a poem about a, a flea crawling up across a woman's breast and think, well, that's quite literally taken, you know, it, it means nothing. It seems to have nothing to do with love. But when you give it to a human to read, many of those humans say, oh, yeah, that really does describe love. I, I feel that and I resonate with that. And their skin tingles and they feel... They feel, as I say, a resonance. And Nagel can explain that. You can't. Now, I know what you're going to say, Sean. I at least know one response that you might give. And the one response might be, well, that sounds a lot like religion, right? That sounds a lot like when people say, well, I felt the aura of God descend around me and I felt uh, his holy presence inside me. And the atheist says, well, nonsense, you didn't, you know, that's just you saying you felt that. But in the God case, it seems that I could be wrong, right? I felt something, but I'm just wrong about what it is. I'm just, I'm just wrong that it's the spirit of God in me. Instead, it's something else. It's some other concoction of neural states and mental states, if I believe in mental states. But in the emotion case, the feeling of being in love or the feeling of pain or whatever it is that's conveyed by the poem, it seems again, and I'm going to push this point, like I can't be wrong, right? It seems like when I say, yeah, yeah, man, this, this hits me in the feels that I can't be wrong that that's happening. It's a, it's a very interesting rejoinder. I'll have a couple of responses to it. The one is conciliatory. And so that's just... Let's put aside a, a little bit of an agreement package and just say, okay, sure, there are some things that objective science seems not to be able to account for, but yet appears to be part of people's lives or significant to them in some way. I, I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with poetry being a realm of human occupation beyond the scope of science. But I think that what philosophers are interested in and the philosophy of mind and psychology is to have a science of the mind. And so we're interested in explaining scientifically, hopefully, what is going on up here when we have all these feelings. So if you're saying, oh, you can't really do that in objective terms, but I have these great poems for you, 
then sure, you know, there's a reason that poets are still very popular. So we can leave that aside. But then I think that we've effectively ended the conversation about uh, the philosophy of mind. And now we're, we're really just engaged in aesthetics and stuff about which I'm happy to be agnostic. So, so that's, that's the one, you know, maybe that's, that's the truth. But the, the other one, which I guess I'd just like to explore to, to throw back out there is to say, wouldn't it offend your intuitions on this point if rather than interesting poets about, uh, poems about, you know, these great warm, fuzzy feelings, I instead wrote a poem about death and destruction and, and fires and the gnashing of teeth and, and weeping. And so this is what gave me the sense of love and, you know, had a following of people who also resonated with this uh, sort of violent poem and said, oh yeah, th this is the feeling we get when we have love. Then doesn't that clash with your intuition that we are talking about love? I mean, surely we're just responding to poems in, in a different kind of way, but you don't seem to have the resources to say that. For you, if I say it's love, then it's got to be, can't be wrong. Mm. I mean, this is interesting because this is the problem that psychoanalysis faces, right? So my response is going to be similar to a therapist's response. So my response is going to be, well, one of two, either what you're experiencing is real, but it's not the same thing as what people are experiencing when they say they're in love and it's described by the classic love poems, or you're experiencing some concordant emotion along with it, or you're experiencing some other subtype of it. And so, you know, they're going to start analyzing different types of feelings of love and different complexes around love. And then your response is going to be, but that's unfalsifiable. And I'm going to say, well, yes, it is unfalsifiable because that's the nature of psychological claims, but there's reasons why we might still think that it's valuable and good. And that's a whole other discussion, which actually Mark and I really want to have with another guest who's, we, we, want to, we want to get a therapist on or a, a psychodynamic therapist to discuss, you know, these problems around psychological theories about people's behavior, which appear on the face of it to be unfalsifiable. Insofar as these theories are unfalsifiable and they have a bit of reputation as being that way, then we have left our original remit to try to develop a science of the mind. And I mean, look, as, as a pretty extreme naturalist, I'm prepared to say, if that's the end of science, then there's simply no more that we can learn about the mind. Everything else is poetry and your responses to it. And I'm prepared to say, I've then given you the total answer, the substantive answer, the knowledge answer as to what's going on up here. You can say that there are other you know, parts of human existence which are interesting to look at from one perspective or another, but for me as a naturalist, if it's not from the scientific perspective, then I don't think that we're really developing knowledge about it. I think interestingly, maybe by the analysis of poems or, or perhaps psychoanalysis as well, we might discover something about ourselves and how we respond to these sorts of things. I think you can engage in art um, uh, appreciation and learn something about yourself in some nebulous kind of way, but I no longer think of that as really part of science. So. So yeah, I mean, if that is a dead end or part of a cul-de-sac, I, I think we, we have to turn around, but I think that is where the discussion of qualia ultimately goes. It's perhaps much more an aspect of our culture, our mythos, who we are, and much less about our predictive capacities for explaining this particular animal and its features. But I think it's, it's a cul-de-sac that we should both be happy with, right? Because earlier I was trying to make the claim that 
the theory theory of psychology is false because psychology, at least some of the time, is unfalsifiable. And you were arguing against that claim. But here you're conceding it and saying, well, then it's not a scientific theory. And well, that's what I said in the first place, right? It's not a theory. And so it doesn't compete with uh, the neurological theory of behavior. And so you could run both concordantly, right? So you could say they're actually explaining different things and they're both valuable. So there is a part, is part of a concession and the, the concession leads me to a version of instrumentalism in a way that I see, as far as it goes scientifically, I see folk psychology as a sometimes useful tool of explaining and predicting relatively surface level behavior of human beings. Sometimes you can predict uh, group behavior as well. Sometimes you can, you can explain those sorts of things. But yeah, when you really look closely, I, I think it obviously has limitation. Even the example that we gave earlier of the drinking water, there is a, a clause in there, which is that all other things should be equal. I wanted to quench my thirst. I believe there was a glass of water. And so I drank the water, but there's a clause there, all other things being equal. And it's not clear when or if all other things are ever going to be equal. For example, we may hypothesize somebody has countervailing beliefs or desires. They want to quench their thirst. They believe the water will quench the thirst, but they also have a religious commitment against drinking water on this particular day. So they didn't drink the water. Or then once again, they've lost their religious belief because they had some experience. And so they did drink the water and on and on it can go, rendering the theory unfalsifiable. So this is why I sometimes describe myself as an instrumentalist. I think that the folk psychological terms may at times be useful. And we've seen some application of that is, but there are moments at which, at least scientifically, I don't think it's useful. And at these moments, I think we may have to descend to a more fundamental level that provided by neuroscience. So if I understand your position, part of it is to say that throughout human history, we have developed this very rich metaphorical language to try and understand ourselves. And we've created this notion of mental states. And it's the same kind of thing like Newtonian physics. In other words, it was close enough. It was aiming in the right direction. But now that we have advanced, now that we've discovered some, you know, more thorough way of describing what's going on, we can, we could kick away the ladder of the metaphors and we could say, we no longer need to use this at all. We can just rely on the science or we can retain it, but recognize that it is mere metaphor, that it is not aiming at truth, that it has some other kind of function, as you say, like an aesthetic function, like a poetic function, in the same way that you might think it's useful to keep Newtonian physics around for a certain purpose, just not for working out the way that fundamental particles work. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's a nice uh, way of putting it. When I was thinking about this topic, I was talking to one of my best friends, and he's been diagnosed with ADHD. And I was asking him, you know, what, what does he think about the mind and mental states and stuff? You know, it, what, what does he think about my illuminativism? And he found it actually very comforting because prior to finding out his diagnosis, the only way that he and many others around him could explain his, his behavior would be to say, well, he just doesn't really feel like working. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't have the will to work. He's lazy. He's not doing what he should be doing. In fact, that's not the case. He didn't have those mental states, those folk psychological states, rather what was going on is that he has attention, attention deficit, and that's caused by a certain uh, chem brain chemistry, and he can supplement that brain chemistry using, using tablets and other kinds of therapies. So there's a way in which, yeah, it works for some purposes, but when it doesn't, we should do away with it and give way to, to other languages, more precise languages. 
which is not to say anything about its aesthetic qualities. I just have nothing to say about that myself because I'm not much of an artist. But yeah, I mean, if someone said this is really important to retain this language for poetic purposes, I'm not going to be the one to take that away from them. My concern is with science. And when it stops working for science, then I think it stops working.